book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 4. I believe this is the uh, fourth message, if I'm not mistaken. through the whole chapter. So, read along with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I lauded the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never has been, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every success of the work is a result of jealousy between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands in embrace and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a second man, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of good? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous endeavor. Two are better than one because they have good wages for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion." But woe to the one who falls when there is not a second one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can stand against him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor and yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive warning. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born in his kingdom. I have seen all the living who walk about under the sun go along with the second lad who stands in place of him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be glad with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read these words of Solomon and contemplate his observations help us to in a sense see what he saw but more than that lord help us to see more given the fact that we have more revelation help us to glean the principles from these words help us to apply them to our lives Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words. And your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In studying this uh, chapter, right away you can see uh, it's a bit despairing, a bit gloomy, a bit depressing, and uh, many uh, preachers um, 
who have preached this and have almost in a sense uh, tried to um, make an excuse for that or lessen the blow a little bit. But I think it's, um, it's intentional, it's real, it's important. I think it's a part of the whole theme of the book of Ecclesiastes that in a sense Solomon um, brings us almost to the point of despair several times and, and there's a, a good reason for that. Um, but more than that, this, this chapter seems um, for many preachers, many uh, commentators, hard to outline, hard to see uh, the whole argument. And, and I see it more as a, an illustration of what came before. As uh, some have said, uh, Solomon is in a sense going in, in circles, going back to the same principles over and over, and then he explains them in greater detail and expounds upon them. And this seems to be somewhat of an illustration of the previous chapter as he talks about the seasons and times of life and the different circumstances of life. And many of those times and seasons, those circumstances are outside of our own control. We just find ourselves in those uh, circumstances. And here uh, in this chapter, uh, Solomon he, in a sense, details tragic res results of living in a broken, sin-cursed world of um, the different circumstances that people find themselves in. And uh, there's a lot, you can just read it and you see a lot of pain and frustration and uh, despair. Old Testament scholar Dr. William Barrick, he writes this concerning this passage. He says that the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes confronts four major problems in everyday life under the sun. First, the existence of unrelieved oppression in verses 1 to 3, of unsatisfied jealousy in verses 4 to 6, of unmitigated loneliness in verses 7 to 12, and the uncertainty of political power and popularity in verses 13 to 16. And he goes on, he says, The author mentions observing these problems, letting us know that he is an eyewitness of these situations. The numeral two plays a major role in this chapter, occurring eight times, translated both as, sometimes as both, dependent, another, and second. And as we see, there's, there's really four sections in this passage. We, in a sense, see four situations concerning uh, the different uh, endeavors, labors, statuses, positions of mankind in this world. And within each situation or scene, we see pairs of characters. So in this chapter, uh, it seems to me that Solomon is painting a picture of the brokenness and the frustrations of life lived in a fallen world. And he paints this picture in four scenes, each with its own set of characters. And so that's how I've outlined this. Four scenes, which with each with its own set of characters. And the first scene shows us the oppressed and the oppressors. As he opens up, he says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. But they had no one to comfort them. So I lauded the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has, never has been, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So we see 
the main characters are the oppressed and the oppressors. And, and just a side note, as I was looking at this and, and these few verses, I, I find it interesting that these are the two classes of people which Marxists divide everyone up into. It's the foundation for that whole uh, uh, economical, political system. And, and what's interesting is they, they, they build their system on these two classes of oppressed and oppressor classes and then uh, gain power by appealing to the oppressed whom they can't claim to be on the side of and then once they gain power, they quickly become the oppressors, which was, in a sense, their goal all along. And then they create the most oppressive form of government ever. This is what Marxism does, and, and we see it in our society in different forms. Um, and it's interesting because it reminds me of uh, what um, another, I've heard another uh, preachers say before that whenever fallen man sets out to create a utopia based upon his own sinful reasoning, it eventually becomes a dystopia. Uh, unless we uh, form society and human government according to God's laws, we will mess up. We'll, we'll fail because uh, we're sinful. Our, our reasoning is sinful. We, we, we don't really understand and so naturally we will govern and we will order society according to our own desires and our own designs which are um, corrupt so we see this right here in this scene with the oppressors the the oppressed and the oppressors and first we see the plight of the oppressed as he says solomon says uh I looked at, uh, at all the acts of, the opp of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. No one. Here we see Solomon is observing the pain, turmoil, and oppression of others. And there's somewhat of a problem here because, you know, Solomon, he's a king. He's a king of Israel. So you got right away, you got to wonder, who is he observing? Because he's in power. So if it's the Israelites, then, then he's at fault. But then there's also a sense that, that you know, this is the golden age of Israel, and, and he, had, he had power, he had ability to that, that extended power and influence that extended outside of the borders of Israel. So... Um, if he's not talking about the Israelites, then he's talking about those outside and close by or hearing reports. But there's, there's great uh, sympathy and passion here. So you wonder, uh, you know, did Solomon sit on his hands or did he really try to relieve them? Um, or is he just in general, um, you know, making observations of everything that happens outside of his own control and his own power? Dr. Barrick, once again, he writes that the writer does not approach this section dispassionately. He personally identifies with the reality of oppression, with the abuse of power. The writer employs the root word for oppress only two other times in the book. Elsewhere, Solomon uses the root five times in uh, Psalm 72, Proverbs 14, 22, and 28, demonstrating that he had knowledge of oppressive rulers and their oppressed subjects. Possessors of power are perpetrators of oppression. 
And Solomon observes the tears of the oppressed, revealing his sympathy for them. And it may be, you know, going back to when Solomon first came into power, when he prays to God, that, that, that um, prayer, that he, you know, Lord, who is this, this people, this great people of yours that, that you have, have um, placed me over, and, and how can I lead them? And so he prays for wisdom to lead them, and, and he does lead them with wisdom for um, a good part of his life, um, but then he drifts and he falls. And so certainly he cared for his own people, but nonetheless, uh, kings and, and merchants and, and all sorts of people from outside of the borders came, and he heard and he knew a little bit about the oppression in a sin-cursed world. And we hear about it all the time. We hear it more so because we have media, we have internet, we have radio, we have TV, we have uh, pictures um, that come to us of people who are oppressed, who uh, suffer, and people even we may know personally or in our own community, stories we've heard. What's interesting is that uh, he says here that to add insult to injury, he says there's no one to comfort them. There's no one to comfort them. Not only are they oppressed, not only um, maybe they're, they're um, subject to uh, pain or, or torture or slavery or humiliation or uh, just a psychological abuse, sexual abuse, whatever it may be, what's worse is there's no one to comfort them. There's, there's no hope. There, there's nowhere to look. There's, there's nowhere to look for escape, for rescue. And this is, this is the worst part of oppression. We, we, we can think of people that um, live in different parts of the world and... Uh, they, can't, they couldn't escape. They could be enslaved and, or watched by their oppressors in an oppressive uh, country or system, uh, some communist country that um, they just want to keep people in. They, they can't escape. And, and, and more than that, some people are in places where even if, even if they had some sort of uh, uh, ability to escape, uh, the environment would kill them. We, we think of, uh, you know, those um, stuck in communists, you know, before uh, communists, uh, the Soviet Union, in places like Siberia or even in the Middle East. In the, either, either, you know, the tundra will kill them or the desert. I, I, I remember being in Afghanistan, and uh, one thing that really impacted me was seeing children seeing children going out on, on a patrol and, and seeing, uh, I remember one such child, just a young boy, and, and this was right um, about the time John was to be born, and, and there's this young boy, and he's just, there's, there's garbage everywhere, he's dirty, they're, they're trying to get food from us, and, and I don't know, I didn't know his story, but I heard several stories of boys and, and what would happen to that boy, and what type of life he would grow up in, and there's places just, you know, not just the, oppressive, the, the oppression of the Taliban or other warlords, but the oppression of just the environment they lived in. 
and, and the, their lack of, of knowledge and understanding that, you know, they, they, we would try to, uh, you know, improve their condition of life and, and, and they're just, they didn't really care. And you say, well, you know, what do I need clean water for? I got a river there and I, I, I can drink from the river. I can wash my clothes in the river. I can use the river for a restroom. I can get, you know, water for cooking from the river. I got everything I need. Why, why do I need clean water? Why do I need to dig a well? And there's not just, there's just a lack of education. But more than that, there is, there's just gross iniquity and sin. And I've seen that, that boy and, um, I remember right away hear stories of what in um, in that culture there's a, a boy they call the chai boy. It'd be usually a young boy that some warlord or some um, prominent man would have this boy that would go make his chai tea or would do be his little servant. Which, you know, that's you know, on the surface it doesn't sound so bad, but then you hear about the stories that that chai boy would be sexually abused over and over again and the rampant sexual abuse and just oppression and then the fact that there's nowhere to go unless someone else comes in and rescues me and and worse than that worse than that situation there's situations throughout Every so many different countries we hear about in Central America, South America, human trafficking and, and the oppression of cartels and the oppression of governments and just corruption. And uh, we are so richly blessed, we don't even realize it sometimes. Solomon sees this uh, the plight of the oppressed is, is, you know, made worse in the fact that there's no one to comfort them. I remember seeing children like that and just um, saying to myself, by God's grace, that won't be my son. And only by God's grace. And only by God's grace, that wasn't me. That I wasn't born in a, a, a corner of the world and under oppression and, and slavery and um, evil. Solomon sees this in the world. He sees the plight of the oppressed, but more than that, he sees the power of the oppressors. He said, he, said, uh, he, sa he saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. Was power. This is sense of there's so much power on the side of the oppressors, there's, there's nothing the oppressed can do. They're powerless. There's, there's, there's no hope. They almost have... Um, infinite power from the perspective of the oppressed. The power which seems to never be in jeopardy of being taken away. And they wield that power. And think of all the evils that go on in our world with slavery and human trafficking and the frustrations and despair of being powerless and oppressed. That's why he, he goes on to say, in a sense, it, it would be better off if they were never born. They would be better off dead. There's also a sense here, though, as we uh, read this, as, as Solomon says that he saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And, and then he goes on and he says, and on, their side, uh, on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. And, and most would, would take that, 
that last phrase of verse 1 as emphasis. Um, oftentimes in, in uh, the Old Testament and just um, in Hebrew, the, um, they, they would uh, repeat a phrase for emphasis or repeat a word for emphasis. And that's most likely what is happening here. That they're, they're emphasize, that, that Solomon is emphasizing that they have no one to comfort them. But there's also a sense that the oppressors have no one to comfort them. Because you read stories, and not to have sympathy for the oppressors, but I've heard and I've read stories about leaders in, say, uh, communist countries or in cartels. And uh, that whole system, that whole organization is ran and governed by fear. That even those who are, are cutthroat and are able to make it up to the top or rise in the organization or the corrupt government, they're always in fear of who's going to come up behind me because I had to do all these uh, wicked deeds to rise in power. And so that implies that the people around me are looking to do the same thing to me. So you hear reports, you, you hear, you know... Uh, Sometimes you, you read about testimonies, people in, in communist countries that, that come to faith and defect or they get out and they say, even though they were in power, they were just uh, tormented by fear. The whole, the whole system was ran on fear. And so there is a sense that, that even the oppressors are mentally tormented um, because the systems run on fear and there's no one to comfort them. They, they, they may seem to find their pleasure, their joy, their fulfillment in oppressing others, but they themselves, as they oppress others, are being oppressed themselves. Because their power can be upended by someone else in their own organization. And that often happens. But on both sides, there's, there's no comfort. There's no comfort... For the oppressed, there's no comfort for the oppressors. And Solomon's conclusion is this, So I lauded the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never has been, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And so we see the plight of the oppressed, the power of the oppressors, and then what Solomon uh, concludes, the peace of the dead the peace of the dead, that his conclusion is that they will no longer experience the evil of this world. They're, they'll, they'll have some sort of peace. But as we know, that's only true so long as if they aren't in hell. Because it, it, as sad as it may seem to think of all the people, all the oppressed people, those who are uh, enslaved who, those who are uh, victims of human trafficking, of, of sexual abuse, of, of psychological abuse, of just uh, living in uh, what seems to be a barren land uh, subject to famine. Those people that, that live a miserable existence, unless they repent, it'll be worse. It'll be worse. Because they've sinned against a holy God. And 
all the torment that sinful man can heap upon them is not enough to uh, punish all their sins. And that's something to, to show the, the height of our sinfulness. So that even those oppressed, unless they repent and trust in Christ, they will face hell. Because that's how wicked their sin is. Even though they live as victims of oppression. As one preacher says, uh, you know, for those that are in Christ, life in this world is as the worst it will ever be. And for those who are outside of Christ, life in this world is the best it could possibly be. And that's true for the oppressed as well. But Solomon looks at the oppressor and the oppressed, and his conclusion is it's better off for the oppressed that they were never born in the first place. It's better off that they will never experience the evil of this world. There's a sense that, you know, as I, I read through uh, this book and I study this book, and it leads, um, as I believe it's intended, to despair of life in this world, I, I'm, I think of Job time and time again. And there's a sense that Job had uh, somewhat a similar attitude as the, the, uh, Solomon does concerning the oppressed and the oppressors in these first few verses. Job, um, after his, he, um, Satan afflicts him, and, and he starts off good because he, he, he starts off and he, he uh, bows down and he worships and he says, uh, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and that's... You know, when, when the trial first starts, when the affliction first starts, uh, you know, us as believers, it's, it's easy to think and say and do the right things. But as that trial wears on, it gets harder and harder. And Job says in Job chapter 3, verse 11, Why did I not die from the womb? Come forth from the womb and breathe my last. Why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. It would have been rest to me with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt waste places for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver. Or why was I not like a miscarriage hidden away as infants that never saw light? There the wicked cease from raging and there the weary of strength are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is troubled, and life to the bitter soul? Who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who are glad with joy and rejoice when they find the grave. See, Job is, you know, he's, he's lamenting his affliction and his... Uh, Circumstances. This is, in a sense, what Solomon is, is pointing to, trying to reveal to us the, just the great evil of oppression and those uh, being oppressed. And there's, you know, a, a, an illustration, a, a saying, I, I've heard it from other preachers, and a, I've used it in my own evangelism concerning the brokenness of this world. 
I would tell people, you know, if you don't believe the Bible, believe the news. You don't believe the Bible believes the news. And, and what other preachers have meant by that, and what I mean when I say that, is that the Bible says that this is a broken, sin-cursed world. And the news says that all day long. If you don't believe the Bible, believe the news. This world is messed up. And so in this first scene of Solomon's picture of life lived under the sun, we have seen the oppressed and the oppressors. And in the second scene, we see this. We actually see three people. The haves, the have-nots, and the have-enoughs. The haves, the have-nots, and the have-enoughs. Verses 4 to 6, I have seen that every labor and every success of the work is the result of jealousy between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands in embrace and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. See right here in, in uh, verse Four, I have seen that every labor and every success of the work is a result of jealousy between a man and his neighbor. And right off from reading that, we, we see that. We, we see that, the, the drive of the discontent. The, the, this is the drive of the discontent. It, it's uh, keeping up with the Joneses. And, and even if, if you're not trying to compete with the Joneses, you know, so to speak, you, you naturally compare yourself to one another. You, you naturally uh, look around and, and you see what other people have. And, and even if it's slightly better, it'd be, it'd be nice to have that. You know, ra rather than a push lawnmower, a riding lawnmower would be a little bit better. You know, or you know, whatever it may be. I remember uh, you know, I, I've, for a while now, almost 20 years, I've owned a pickup truck different pickup trucks, but I've owned a pickup truck. And uh, my most recent one, and even the one prior to that, um, when I first got it, I would think of the accessories. And I, I tell people, you know, a man in a pickup truck, truck is kind of like a, a woman in her outfits. There, there's always things to add. And, and the first thing for, you know, four by four. You, you want a four by four, definitely. Um, and if you don't have a 4x4, four four, you notice all the ones that do. And, and then all the other things, the lights, the grills, the, you know, whether there's a cap on the back, there's so many accessories. And if you don't have them, you definitely notice the ones that do. And you think, well, that would be nice. And, and there's this discontentment. I remember well, one time I was driving in uh, Southern California uh, going down to L.A. And uh, something, uh, you know, just hear this loud rumbling noise and and all of a sudden i see this almost like a, a monster truck or as as big of a monster truck that could be legally on the road and and right away you know i'm thinking well that will definitely never be me and then i see a trailer that it's pulling and on the trailer is a ferrari I'm like that will never be me and there's some sense in which uh, just looking at the extremes just kind of um, bursts your bubble of, you know, discontentment, you know. But there is a sense that, you know, we just naturally compare ourselves with others. This discontentment, this envy, jealousy, keeping up with the Joneses or, or just trying to have better, or, you know, just trying to have more. Uh, and... and there is a sense, there, there's a, a principle of success by association. 
you ever heard of that, that um, they say that um, most um, people will be the average, their, their earnings or um, whatever other category you measure a person by, they will be the average of the people around them. Maybe a little bit better or maybe a little bit worse, but you will, um, in a sense, be somewhat like the people around you. This is true even in a spiritual sense. I've heard uh, uh, preachers say, hang out with the holy. You know, because you will, in a sense, be like those around you. Is you we just naturally compare ourselves to others and we long for more. We long for better. There's this drive, the drive of the discontent. Uh, the haves in this, this war between the haves and the have-nots. And, and whether it's explicit, whether, you know, the neighbors or coworkers are actually trying to one-up one another or do better than one another, even if that, it's not explicit, we wonder in our minds. And so um, contentment is just, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Even Paul says in uh, Philippians 4, I have learned to be content. This means he, he had to learn it. There's a, there's a Puritan who wrote a book, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Because it's rare. It's something we have to work on. So we see, first, the drive of the discontent in the haves and the have-nots. And then we see the fruition of the foolish. The fool folds his hands in embrace and consumes his own flesh. You know, if you're not um, competing against one another, you're just... There's the foolish, the, the, the fool that just throws up his hands and says, I give up. Or I, I have enough, uh, you know, my, my level of comfort is just enough that, that I don't have to work and I, I'm fine with this and, and I don't have to, and just whatever. I don't care. He says he, he, the fool folds his hands in embrace. There, there's this, almost a sense as, you know, God has created us to work. And we work with our hands, and it's almost as in a sense that he's closing his tools, like his toolbox, what he's, he's supposed to use to work and to labor and to um, you know, do what he has been created to do. He's refusing to work. It's like he's, he's closing up his toolbox or closing up his, his workshop, so to speak, in a, a, a physical sense that, that he closes, he folds his hands, and no, I'm, I'm not going to work. And then what happens? He consumes his own flesh. He consumes his own flesh. This folding of the hands, it reminds me, you know, Solomon wrote in Proverbs about this. Primarily Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come in like a vagabond. And your want like an armed man. He's saying just, just a little rest, just a little laying down, just a, a little, you know, uh, laziness. And, and in the end, there's poverty. And this is what happens here in verse 5, that the fool folds his hands in embrace. And later on, he ends up consuming himself. You see so many illustrations of this in, in life. In life, uh, you know, uh, we see homeless people. We see um, people that, you know, especially young people, they call it failure to launch. 
failure to launch out into the world, failure to uh, find your career, find your calling. You're just too comfortable. Why should I move out? Why, why should I, you know, uh, uh, toil to make a, a living for myself when, you know, I'm comfortable at home or, you know, people support me, my parents or my um, grandparents or, you know, I have an aunt or an uncle or, or a friend or, you know, someone's there and they're okay if I sleep on the couch and I'm okay with sleeping on the couch and, you know, I can eat leftovers and, and this is just fine, <laughs> you know, and that, that, that's the fool. But what happens when the fool turns 40 or 50 or 60 and hasn't saved up for retirement, hasn't um, made something, hasn't, hasn't um, had a career or degrees or anything to establish himself in the world, and, and he, then he tries to maybe get a job, and they're like, well, what have you done for the past 30 years? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Sat around. Uh, the fool ends up consuming himself. His lifestyle, which he thought was wise and enjoyable, wise in his own eyes, it ends up consuming him. He destroys himself. So we see the, the drive of the discontent in the haves and the haves-nots, and then the fruition of the foolish. And then third, we see here in this section, in this scene, the benefits of the balance. The benefits of the balance. Solomon says in verse 6, One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor, and striving after the wind. He, he, he pits uh, the anxious, uh, overworking uh, workaholic that, that's just uh, trying to uh, uh, achieve, overachiever, that, that's trying to get everything. He pits him against the, the person that's, that is balanced. And we see the one handful of rest, one handful of rest and one handful of labor versus two hands full of labor and no rest. The, the, the benefits of the balance, that they figured it out. They, they work enough to support their families and contribute to society, and yet they rest enough to enjoy family and friends and God's gracious gifts to mankind. This is the benefits of the balance. You know, we, we hear, um, and throughout the Bible, you, you hear more uh, uh, against the, the, the sluggard and the lazy fool um, but there's also verses uh, against the, the, the anxious overworker. And, and it's interesting, it, it, you know, I, I've um, recently uh, heard these, these principles um, by uh, physical fitness gurus and bodybuilders that, um, that overtraining actually destroys them. They're, they're, it, 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 it inhibits their growth. As they're trying to build muscle and, and build their physique, um, they've realized that they can't spend too long in the gym or else it, it, it works against them. They actually need rest. And in, in fact, um, I've heard uh, from uh, professional bodybuilders that a lot of times um, they're sleeping. They spend a good amount of their time sleeping. They work out for a little bit of time, they eat a lot, and then they sleep a lot. To build and, and so God has made us in such a way that we do we are supposed to work but we also need to rest and so there has to be this balance here we can't be like the fool and then we can't be like the anxious workaholic either I like what David Gibson writes in his book living life backward which this is a, a 
a small paperback, uh, kind of a devotional commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. I would highly recommend this book, Living Life Backward by David Gibson. But he writes this, he says, When we realize there is a middle way between being lazy in the here and now and busting a gut for the future, we find tranquility. We realize that rest and peace are more important than wealth and success. We look down and find that only one hand is full, but we know that it is more than enough. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, suggested that we learn to find contentment by way of subtraction rather than addition. People normally think that to achieve contentment, you have to attain whatever it is you desire. Our possessions need to be raised up to the level of our desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. He can bring his desires down to his possession, be content with what God has given him, what God has given us. And Solomon, he, he, he realizes because uh, he, he's only written a, a couple psalms, but the, the one probably most famous psalm he wrote, Psalm 127, he writes this, Unless Yahweh builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. We're called to work, but we also need to rest. And so it's better to have one full of rest than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. And so in this chapter, we've seen the oppressed and the oppressors in the first scene of Solomon's picture. The haves, the have-nots, and the have-enoughs in the second scene. And now we see in the third scene the helpless and the helped. The helpless and the helped, verse 7 to 12. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a second man, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of good? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous endeavor. Two are better than one because they have good wages for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not a second one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, who can stand against him? A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We see... The, here in these verses, the helpless and the helped. We see um, those with companions, those with a partner, and, and those with no one. We see first the, the, the lonely laborer in verses 7 and 8, that there was a certain man without a second man, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. There's no end to all his labor. This is a person that just... You know, for whatever circumstances, he finds himself alone in the world, whether he just doesn't like people or he isolates himself or he, um, he never got married or, or he, he, he doesn't, he uh, burned bridges in all his relationships and he just works and works and works and he, he has stuff, but then he has no one to share the stuff with, no one to go on vacation with, no one to enjoy life with. This is the lonely laborer. This is, you know, many of you know the song. This is Eleanor Rigby. 
all the lonely people. Where do they come from? And sometimes just, you know, it's not the person. Sometimes it's just the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. I've met several people that just, you know, they were a single child, and, and then, um, and then they, they, got, they got married, and, and, uh, and then they only had one child, and, and then, um, you know, their child moved away, and, and then um, their, their parent, uh, their, their father died, and now they're taking care of their, their mother, and, and they're just, they're all lonely. Or, or a person that is just orphaned, or a person that is just the circumstances of living in a broken and sin-cursed world that, you know, there's singleness. There's uh, just uh, oppression. There's um, just people move away. There's broken relationships. But what Solomon's really pointing out at here is the, the person that's uh, consumed by themselves in their work. So much so that, that they don't develop relationships. They, they don't, uh, they don't uh, cultivate the relationships they do have. They, they, they don't value the relationships they have. They're, they're not in community. They're not sharing life with somebody else. They're just, they're just uh, trying to work as much as they can to gain as much as they can to uh, use it to, to satisfy their own desires, to use it on themselves. And, and in the end, all they have is themselves. And then they're forced to you know, look at all their stuff and just empty. And there's so many stories, uh, you know, of, of many rich and famous people that this was their life. They, they were, were striving to climb this ladder of success and, and they, they ruined relationships all, all along the way and they, they got the success, but in the end, the success didn't fulfill them. And now they're lonely. So Solomon paints this picture of the helpless, the lonely laborer. And more than that, he goes on. He says, and the, the man says, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of good? This too is vanity and is a, is a grievous endeavor. And his, his conclusion, two are better than one because they have good wages for their labor. So he lists the lonely laborer, but then he moves on to the dynamic duo. The dynamic duo, and, and not just uh, Batman and Robin, though that is a, an illustration. And he says, two are better than one because they have good wages for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not a second one to lift him up. This is a dynamic duo that they get more for their labor. There's synergy. It, it, it's not just uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, but... And working together, we actually have more than working apart. And certainly, you know, you're going to get sick, and, and I'll help you when I get sick. And, and this is, in a sense, why, you know, we have those famous uh, marriage vows for rich or poor, or for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's a benefit of marriage. Uh, but unfortunately, as, you know, everything else in this sin-cursed world, we have... Uh, marriages that aren't what they should be, and even partnerships that aren't what they should be. But if they are what they should be, then two are indeed better than one. You have this dynamic duo. More than that, you have uh, verses 11 to 12, the protected pair. The protected pair. Furthermore, if two lie down, they 
together they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can stand against him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So it's not just that there's synergy in working together and having a companion, but there's protection. There's, there's protection from the elements that, that they can keep warm together. And, and this is kind of hinting at, at um, a married couple, but uh, in, in that era, um, in, in that environment, um, families, um, companions, uh, uh, you know, if, if you were a, a Bedouin uh, merchant or a, a desert merchant or shepherd, you would sleep with your fellow to keep warm. You know, whatever, it, you know, and we're trained in the military to do this. If it gets cold enough, you have to buddy up. Navy SEALs and their, their training as they're doing that cold water training and left on the shore and sprayed with cold water and down to 50-something degrees until their body temperature drops. They get through that training by huddling up on one another. And almost in a sense the same way penguins do and they, they get in the center and then they rotate out and you know, that's, you got to do what you got to do. But there's protection from the elements with a buddy, with a companion. But they're also protected from enemies. They're protected from enemies. And if one can overpower him who is lone, two can stand against him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. There's a sense where it's not just a protected pair, but Solomon goes on, if two are better than one, then three is better than two. So we not only have the dynamic duel, but also the triumphant trio to show us that, that companions, partners, are important. They're, they're, they're important in life in this world, not only for our productivity, but for our safety, for our help, for our comfort, for our security. This not only shows us the importance of our close relationships of marriage and children and family, but of the church, of the church. You've heard it said before, there's no Lone Ranger Christian. If there is, they, they eventually shoot themselves in the foot, so to speak, and they, they hinder their own growth. You know, one of my mentors and professors in a seminary and, and just a man I look up to, um, 50 years in, in one church and planting several other churches, he'd always tell us, He'd say, a lone wolf is a dead wolf in ministry. You need partnerships. You need other ministers. You need organizations, fellowships, prayer partners. And he'd say, there's no lone wolf. You can't be a lone wolf minister. A lone wolf is a dead wolf. And it's true. That's true for all of us. We can't do life in this sin-cursed world alone. And so we see in this this uh, painting of Solomon's, these scenes, these different scenes. We see the oppressed and the oppressors in the first scene of Solomon's picture, the haves and the have-nots and the have-enoughs in the second scene. And now we see in this, uh, in this fourth scene, the great and the small. The great and the small. So, verses 13 to 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive warning. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. 
I have seen all the living who walk about under the sun go along with the second lad who stands in place of him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be glad with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. Vanity and striving after wind. We see these two people here, the poor yet wise lad and the old and foolish king, and there's almost, in a sense, as if they, they, they switch places. And these two characters in this scene are, are really the great and the small. There's the great and the small, and though they, they switch places almost as a, the poor, wise lad um, ascends to power, there's still a sense that he's forgotten. We see two things here in, in this, this scene of the great and small. We see first the source of significance, the source of, of greatness, the source of true influence. See, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive warning. And so we see the source of significance comes from wisdom. Comes from wisdom and, and, and willingness to receive correction. But also we see a source of significance is in providence, in God's providence, because we see that he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And so it's not just that he's been given wisdom that makes him ascend to power and influence and greatness, but that there's providence. There's providence. That, that God humbles and he, is, he exalts. He places us within a, a, a realm of, um, of influence or a realm of um, living. He puts us where he intends to place us. So we see the, the, the source of true significance is in wisdom and in God's providence. That though, um, you know, many people are wise and intelligent in the, this world, they don't have the opportunities to ascend. So we see here in the great and the small, the source of significance, but also we see the extent of eminence. The extent of eminence. Eminence. I have seen all the living who walk about under the sun go along with the second lad who stands in place of him. Talking about the um, old foolish king. And he says, there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be glad with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. We, we, we see this, this, this uh, picture, this picture of a, a rise of... Um, of rags to riches, so to speak. This story that we're all familiar with, uh, the um, Cinderella story, the, the rise of rags to riches, or you know, even um, thinking about the Bible, this could be somewhat of an allusion to Joseph in his story. And we like those stories. We like the, to read those stories, to see those movies. But then Solomon goes on and he says, uh, they in a sense forgot him. And those who will come later will not be glad for him. And so even though, you know, the wise and poor lad ascended to power and influence, eventually he's forgotten. That's the extent of eminence, is that everyone will eventually be forgotten. We'll, we'll all be swallowed up by the sands of time. 
eventually, you know, e e even after we die, and, and we see this in funerals. You see this in funerals, uh, almost every funeral. There's grief, there's mourning, but then what happens? Life goes on. Life goes on. And those closest to that person who died, yeah, certainly they bear more grief and more, uh, they, the mourning is longer, um, but eventually they move on. And eventually everybody else moves on with their life. And, and then those that remember that person, eventually they will die. You know, I, I have, um, my family has kept really good records of our uh, genealogy, our family tree going back to 1730. But, you know, two generations um, before me, I, I don't know, they're just a name. They're just a name. Eventually we'll all be forgotten. And some people don't have those records either of their family. And even past 1730, I don't, I don't know. Don't know any of them. That's all of us. That's the extent of eminence. And so as Solomon paints all these scenes and shows these characters, the oppressed and the oppressors, the haves, the have-nots, and the have-enoughs, the helpless and the helped, and then the great and the small, there's some wisdom that we can glean from here, but the end of it is, in a sense, this almost a despair and a depression of life lived in a sin-cursed world. And there's, there's an intention to that. And the lesson of this passage and even the whole book of Ecclesiastes is not to throw your hands up and, and give up to or give in to the lie of fatalism that whatever will be, will be. And, and um, as Muslims say, inshallah, if God wills, this, this lie of fatalism. Yes, God is sovereign. I've heard uh, other preachers talk about um, in the context of you know, growing in holiness, the, the punt to sovereignty. Well, God is sovereign, so well, no, well, you're still responsible. And so there is a tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, and more so even human achievement and human circumstances. But the answer is not just to give up. One commentator, he writes this, he says, Generation after generation, People seek solutions to the problems of humanity both the social, in both the social and moral realms. They expend wealth and power on attempting to right society's wrongs. Frustratingly, however, every attempt meets failure. Every great society eventually collapses and the advances of decades disappear in the dust of another depression, another war, or another natural disaster. Derek Kidner's keen observation of about chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, provides a potential association between the oppression in verses 1 to 3 and the political inconsistencies of verses 13 to 16. He notes the paradox that a transfer of power to promote change actually limits the possibility of reform itself because the more control the reformer wields, the more it tends to tyranny. The all-inclusive fallen condition of humanity defies self-restoration. As Michael Kelly observes, the masses willingly support revolution because they cannot believe that the fault lies in them. The indelible sinful nature of fallen mankind prevents the success of setting up the kingdom of God apart from the return of Jesus Christ. Ideal social justice must await the righteous one 
himself. That's the message. That's the message of this passage. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is to show us the meaningless and the despair of a life lived apart from a transcendent purpose, a life lived apart from God. It's meant to drive us to despair and finding hope and peace in this world and to drive us to God and the hope and peace of God's perfect providence, the comfort of God's presence and His promises, promises such as this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you? And in the end, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. He will wipe away every tear of every eye. He will right the wrongs of everything. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes is to drive us to God in light of all the fullness of this world, and to uh, live a life that is pleasing to God. As he says at the end, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Heavenly Father, we are so prone, so prone to looking for fulfillment, for help, for hope, for joy in the things of this world. And certainly you bless us. You've given us an abundance of blessings here in this time and place, in this country in which we live, and we, we have so much. But all that we have is temporary. It's fleeting. One day it will be gone as, as we will one day be gone as well. And so our only lasting hope, our only true hope is in you and in your kingdom to come. So, Lord, as we live and move and have our being in this world, help us to live in light of you, of your salvation, of your redemption, and of the return of Christ. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and to make the most out of every opportunity to, and circumstance to glorify you and, and not to place our hope in circumstances even though you bless us with good circumstances. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Please guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.